Good morning from the newsroom of the Financial Times. I'm Mark Filipino. Now, the FT News Briefing doesn't normally have a show on Saturdays, but today we're bringing you a bonus episode featuring one of our other podcasts. In the UK this week, major parties kicked off their campaign for the December 12th general election. You can catch up on the twists and turns of this hotly contested campaign in the FT Politics UK Election Countdown podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, enjoy the show right here. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, economics editor, Chris Jowes, and deputy opinion editor, Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. So the general election campaign began this week, and it didn't particularly go too well for the Conservative Party. While Boris Johnson was hoping to focus on his core message of getting Brexit done and his domestic priorities, it was overshadowed by the resignation of the Welsh Secretary, Alan Cairns, inept comments by Jacob Rees-Mogg and Andrew Bridgen on Grenfell Tower, and the general sense that it's not quite going as the Conservatives had hoped for. So, George Parker, if we look at the first week of the campaign and we see who's done the best out of this, it's probably the Labour Party in all this, even though Boris Johnson wanted this election, tried to call it three times, and not a whole lot has gone right for his party so far. No, and you um, meet Conservative Party staffers have been moving out of their government departments into Conservative Central Office, into very cramped conditions. And they sort of stagger out into the daylight and say, God, it's been awful in there, a bit too crowded, things haven't gone very well. So, yeah, nerves are showing, understandably so, because this is an election which I don't think anyone in Downing Street is confident of winning. So they need lots of things to go right for them, both in terms of the tactics and in terms of the way the seats fall. And as you mentioned in your introduction there, there have been lots of gaffes along the way, and some of them quite serious, including obviously Jacob Rees-Mogg's very derogatory comments about the victims of Grenfell Tower fire. But at the end of the day... I think a lot of this stuff does tend to wash over voters who are much more focused on big picture stuff than those of us who consume an awful lot of social media around this time of the political cycle. So Miranda Green, let's begin with those Jacob Rees-Mogg comments there that he kicked off the election by going on LBC and for whatever reason got into this discussion about Grenfell Tower and basically implied that the people who suffered in that tragic accident, some of them hadn't followed common sense by leaving the tower as opposed to the London Fire Brigade's policy of sitting tight. And he was actually trying to criticise the Fire Brigade's policy, but the way it came across was criticising the victims themselves and the backlash was completely extraordinary. Yes, it was a serious misstep. And I think, as always, with a gaffe, it's as much what it reveals about the attitude, I think, as the words themselves. And so I think it's really bad for the Conservative Party because they've brought in, for Brexit reasons, to the upper echelons of the Cabinet, people who would once have been figures on the fringes of politics, let's be honest about it. And this kind of old world cult figure that Jacob Rees-Mogg is among some sections of the right, that does not translate well into a broad-based appeal in an election campaign. Also, of course, Kensington was taken by the Labour Party in 2017. And that's where the Grenfell Tower is. And it's now a three-way marginal with Sam Gima, the Tory defector to the Lib Dems, fighting that seat for them. 
it's going to get quite nasty locally there. So it's also very unhelpful for the Tories who wanted to take that seat back. I think that's been the most sort of serious horror show this week, the Jacob Rees-Mogg remarks. But I mean, generally, you just can't avoid the feeling that it's all a bit of an omni shambles so far for the Tories and they have to get a grip on it. I think George is right. A lot of this stuff, we won't even remember these things when we get to polling day. But it's a question of what becomes a sort of signal to the electorate that cuts through. And that problem of sort of out of touch Tories, that's always been an issue for them. Last week, we discussed the accidental retoxification of the Tory brand. That's a problem for them. I think George is very right when he says a lot of this stuff that pings around on social media doesn't really cut through. I mean, for example, when Boris Johnson went to campaign in Northern Ireland, He seemed to be proudly saying that Northern Ireland has a better Brexit deal than the rest of the UK if his deal goes through. You know, it excites people like us because it seems like an enormous admission of a problem with his Brexit deal. But again, is that really going to affect voters on the ground? Well, I'm actually just going to slightly disagree with this for one moment because I think what happens on social media is becoming increasingly important. And to take another thing that happened this week, you had this video of Keir Starmer, Labour's Brexit spokesperson, who went on Good Morning Britain, gave an interview about Labour's position, which, as we know, is having a second referendum, renegotiating a new deal. And there's obviously some contradictions in that policy we've pulled apart many times before. Conservative HQ took this video and they added some comical music to it and some pauses to make it look like Keir Starmer was totally inept. Now, a huge row again broke up about process and fake videos and fake news and all the rest of it. But the fact is, that video's had three million views and somebody I spoke to for a piece in the FT weekend about the campaigns said to me, look, this is very much what we did in the Vote Leave campaign, which is rows we want to have a fight over. So on that instance, I think that's something they're quite happy has gone viral, has had three million views and does matter. But going back to the Jacob Rees-Mogg thing, the signal and the noise, the signal was definitely compounded by Andrew Bridgen, who then took to the airways to defend Jacob Rees-Mogg and sort of essentially said, oh, well, Jacob went to a very good school, he's very clever, and we should let him get on with what he's doing. And that speaks to that underlying sense, Miranda, that these people are just not in touch. And that's absolutely not the message Boris Johnson wants to get out there. Well, I think also it's been compounded by the mess around candidate selection, where some people with really unsavoury views, particularly on rape, have had to be sort of cleansed from the Tory slate. Of course, both parties are having a really bad time this week with their last minute candidate selection as a kind of mirror image there. It's very interesting because, of course, we've all thought an election was inevitable at some point, but still they're having to really scrape the barrel to find people to stand for the two great main political parties in the UK. It's extraordinary. They can't find better candidates, really. I think the Jacob Rees-Mogg and Andrew Bridgen thing sort of speaks to a structural problem the Conservative Party have on this, which is that they are trying to take a Brexit message into the Labour heartlands. And we know that in a lot of those areas they're targeting, there was a very strong leave vote. But there's a question about the messengers. And we know that Brexit and Euroscepticism has been for a long time a passion of predominantly male, white people, often from Thatcherite political backgrounds. And they are exactly the wrong kind of people to be taking that message into Labour heartlands. So you don't want... Jacob Rees-Mogg taking the message. And I understand that he's been benched for the duration of the campaign with an exclusion order sought by the Conservative Party, not allowing him to go more than 20 miles from Midsummer Norton during the course of the campaign. And people like Andrew Bridgen, you want to keep locked up, out of sight. Boris Johnson is an acceptable messenger, but there aren't that many people in the Conservative Party who are acceptable bearers of the Brexit message into the North. Well, I think what 
interesting thing will be is who they put forward in this campaign, George. Because if we mm. look back to the last election, one of the many issues with the 2017 campaign was that the whole cabinet was locked in a cupboard and wasn't allowed to come out. It was only Theresa May's Conservatives. She was the only person on the airwaves. And a lot of the party's best campaigners and messengers, including Boris Johnson, was not allowed anywhere near the airwaves. And the sense that we're getting is that Boris is going to be out there a lot. He's already conducted this tour of the UK. Mm. But also people like Rishi Sunak, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, who's very highly rated in Downing Street. He's going to be out there. Pretty Patel with her very tough message on police and crime will be out there a lot. And Sanjay Javid as well, the Chancellor. Yes, a very diverse looking um, front line. And Robert Jenrick, I think the youngest person in the Cabinet as well, being put out there. So those are the kind of people that they will be using to take the message out there. And I think that is an interesting lineup. You know, that we'll be becoming familiar with people in this election campaign that the electors aren't familiar with. I mean, Joe Swinson obviously is a new leader of the Liberal Democrats. I think the Labour Party will be using people like Laura Pidcock that most people so far are probably quite unfamiliar with. And they will be people to watch whoever wins the next election in a few weeks' time. One thing that strikes me so far, Miranda, is that all the parties want to present themselves as new and fresh. That if you're the Conservatives, you've been in power for nine years, you've got a big record to defend, and that is a problem because if it's public services, the economy, or this issue of candidates and what they've been saying, say, well, you guys, you knew this election was coming, you've been in power for a long time, why are you messing this up? On the Labour side, they're bringing forward a lot of new different faces to very much make it look like it's not just Jeremy Corbyn repeating 2017. And of course, the Liberal Democrats, entirely different looking party with some big figures like Chukramana, Sam Jima and Joe Swinton herself, who were really not anywhere in the last election campaign. Well, that's right. I mean, at election time, parties are really, really conscious that they've got to be talking about the future. And also because the country sort of have been admired in the Brexit conversation, which is exhausting for everyone for the last three and a half years, there has to be some sort of feeling of optimism and a fresh message and fresh faces, as you've quite rightly said. I think it's quite tricky, actually, for Boris Johnson's team, because as you also said, they are defending nearly a decade in power. And that actually means that if it turns out to be what political wonks call a change election... Mm. It's quite tricky branding the governing party who's been responsible for the last 10 years, the party of change. Of course, saying, well, we'll get Brexit done and then we'll renew the country is one way of doing it. But will it go over? I don't know, particularly since the Labour Party seems to have taken this view that they can rebrand their radical economic message with a green tinge and sell it to younger voters Mm. as a radical package to overhaul the economy in favour of the environment, to tackle the climate crisis. I think that's pretty clever, actually. So we'll have to see how that plays out with the under-30s. So just to pick up on Miranda's point, it's a really interesting way that the Conservatives are using language to try and disguise the fact they have been in power, as Miranda says, for the last nine years. Language like Britain could be so much better, and you think, well, you have been in charge here. The way they describe Brexit now is very interesting get Brexit done. We've got to get this thing over the line. Almost as if this thing wasn't something that Boris Johnson in particular has been advocating as Britain's destiny for the last three years. Again, all the campaigns have a variant of it's time for real change as their slogan. Pretty Patel said we need real change this week. It is Labour's slogan and the Liberal Democrats say the same thing. So obviously this sense that people want change is testing very well in the focus groups. Well, it's also to do with this hilarious fact that all of the sort of established political parties have got the message that general discontent with politics 
is a factor. And so they try and brand themselves as outsiders or insurgents, even when they're, you know, an ancient political party that's dominated the scene for, for nearly a century. Or <laughs> it does more. feel quite like quite a pivotal election, especially on the economy, which I know you'll be talking about later. You think back, it's only four years ago in 2015 that the Conservative Party successfully forced an election on austerity and making more austerity the defining feature of their campaign. That was only four years ago. 2017, the economy was barely mentioned. But you really get the sense this time that, you know, after nine years of austerity, the country is ready for a complete break on that. So getting Brexit out of the way and then moving on to a new economic page is a really interesting thing to do. The only thing I would observe about all this is that normally after nine years, you're getting towards the top of an economic cycle. You're lucky if you haven't already been past it. And we're talking about a big economic splurge now at a time when you think, well, actually, are we now getting to the point where the economic cycle is about to turn? Now, the Tories try to draw a line under the difficult start with all this stuff about candidates and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Alan Kenz as well, which is a very complicated situation there where a former aide of the Welsh Secretary was accused of sabotaging a rape trial and there were questions over what Mr Kenz knew when and how and everything and he just decided he had to go and that was very much the classic Conservative strategy of getting the barnacles off the boat mm. and anything that could potentially get in the way just to cut it off. They had their big campaign launch in Birmingham and it was one of these very weird stage managed events in a huge hall with black curtains. About a thousand people turned up. They seemed to enjoy it. Boris Johnson told some jokes and again to your point, George, about just getting Brexit done. He described Brexit as a bendy bus jackknife on the <laughs> yellow box that needs to get done. He reminded the crowd that he'd actually banned bendy buses in London. So that sort of thing looks good, goes down well. But it does strike me when you compare that to Labour, when you go to Labour Party events, there are a thousand people who generally want to be there and they whoop and cheer and applaud everything. But for the Conservatives, the whole thing is much more reserved and much more controlled. And you do have to wonder if voters get any sense of that at all the enthusiasm levels are so different between the two parties. I think that's true. And I think you feel everything's a little bit of a strain for the Conservatives at the start of this campaign. And the dynamic has been quite interesting. You look at John McDonnell making his speech on the economy this week or Jeremy Corbyn launching the Labour campaign and you can rely on the momentum activists turning up. But nevertheless, there is an energy which conveys itself to ordinary viewers when they watch these events on television. And I've always been a bit sceptical about whether Jeremy Corbyn can come close to recapturing the campaigning magic of 2017. But I have to say, I've been rather surprised at the way he's performed so far. You know, they gave an interview to The Guardian where he gave the impression he was actually in control of his party, which is not an impression that's been left with many voters over the last two years. And he gives the impression he's actually up for the fight. So I think actually the Labour Party's had a reasonably good first week. I would agree with that also because even when it gets onto the Brexit conversation that Boris Johnson is so desperate to have, it's actually so far been dominated by the question of whether Donald Trump will get his hands on the NHS, yeah. which is exactly the territory that helps Labour. So this effort to try and steer the conversation for the next five weeks off Brexit, mm. onto domestic policy, if the Labour Party can find ways, either the NHS or food standards in a trade deal with the US, etc., those are ways for them to derail the core message of the Tories and get onto their own strong territory. Miranda's absolutely right. The way that the Labour Party has turned Brexit into a discussion about the NHS and Donald Trump and privatisation, you know, it's such an effective message that the SNP at the launch of their campaign on Friday is coming up with exactly the same policy as well. So 
Boris Johnson's got to be very careful about the way he talks about Brexit in the few, next few weeks. Now, the other thing that happened this week, Miranda, was something quite unique, which was an electoral pact that Unite to Remain, which is a pressure group that's in favour of staying in the EU, announced there'd been a non-aggression pact in 60 seats across the country, mostly focused on Liberal Democrat potential gains. And this is something that's quite interesting because one thing that Remain parties have always said is that we need to work together to try and defeat the Conservatives. They've never successfully done that. I think in some ways it's quite impressive that they've managed to come to this agreement. On the other hand, I spent a lot of Thursday trying to crunch the numbers on this and the actual impact it's going to have on results, it looks as if it's actually just going to more likely reinforce gains that the Lib Dems were going to make anyway. Yeah, it's really interesting, this. So the pact has been put together by Heidi Allen, who, of course, is one of the people who defected from the Tories, went to Change UK, and then when that flopped, went to the Lib Dems herself. She's standing down, but she's been spending the last few weeks putting together this agreement. It worked in the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election for them very well, where those three parties ran a campaign together. To That's get a Lib the Lib Dems, Dem. Greens and Plaid Cymru. Exactly so. And the three of those parties worked together to get a Lib Dem elected as the Remain candidate. This pact really helps the Lib Dems, I think, because it reinforces the idea that a tactical vote against Brexit is something that's an option for voters wherever you are, actually. So I think, in a sense, the message goes beyond those 60 seats that they've agreed to carve up between them. And I think that's been underappreciated in the coverage of the pact so far, because you're right, when you actually crunch the numbers, it could be down in the single figures, the difference that this makes. But the help that it gives is to reinforce the idea that this election is polarised along Brexit lines. And if you're a strong Remainer, you have a limited number of choices. And of course, the Labour Party is not part of the pact, which has annoyed Remain Labour MPs, but it's actually against Labour Party rules to do this kind of arrangement. So I think in a sense, it helps the Lib Dam campaign massively. Who knows, you might get a second Green MP because there's been one for a very long time, but they could win the Isle of Wight. And finally, George, last thing I want to pick up briefly is the North, because Boris Johnson has already been to the northeast of England. We're going to see a lot of him in the northwest, but also in the East Midlands and West Midlands as well, because this is where the Conservative Party is going to have to make gains because it is going to lose seats to the Liberal Democrats, as we were just saying. But they're hopeful of breaking down this thing that posters have called the Red Wall. Mm. And this is, these are seats that economically and demographically, and they voted leave as well, they should all be conservative held, but they're not due to historic reasons. And he's hoping to try and break through there. There was a very interesting report in The Economist where they've done some polling Gedling, which is one of the key seats in the East Midlands that the Tories do need to take. And so far, it doesn't quite look they're going to do it. Like, do you think this thing is going to work for the Tories, that they can somehow win 10 to 15 seats they haven't ever got close to before? Well, it had better work, otherwise Boris Johnson won't be back in uh, number 10 at the end of this election because, as you say, the only place the Conservative Party can make gains, really, is against the Labour Party and in the areas you mentioned, the North and Midlands and parts of Wales. You can see that Boris Johnson, his appeal does run in those areas and you listen to Ian Austin, the former Labour MP for Dudley, who was making the point that if you're patriotic, you know, you should be voting for Boris Johnson. He has a working class appeal, which I think is obvious. He has... An energy. People in some of these areas think Jeremy Corbyn is 1970s throwback, not patriotic and all the rest of it. But it's a huge task for the Conservative Party and all of the effort will be going into those areas. The crucial thing from the point of view of winning those seats is the performance of the Liberal Democrats nationally. I was speaking to one Tory MP who said that the thing to watch really in this election more than anything else is the 
polling gap between the Labour Party and the Conservatives. If that gap gets small and the Liberal Democrat vote starts to collapse, we are in really serious trouble in these red wall seats you mentioned. If you're the Tories, you need the Liberal Democrats to take votes away from the Labour Party, particularly from Remain supporters. Now, Liberal Democrats are polling 16 or 17% at the moment. If that number starts to drop, then the Conservative Party will be in real trouble in the North. There wasn't a huge amount of policy in the campaign this week, but both main parties did focus on spending pledges. Notably, the Conservatives and Labour Party announced they would relax fiscal rules to increase public spending and to allow more money to be spent on public services, which handily will help win over crucial marginal seats. So, Chris Charles, let's begin with the Conservative side of this here. Sajid Javid gave a speech on Thursday up in the north of England, where most of the Conservatives have been this week, and he essentially delivered, as you described it, a budget that never was. What were the crucial things in his economic speech? Well, I think if you look at the Conservatives and you go back to George Osborne as recently as 2015 and the start of 2016, there he was expecting to run a balanced budget by almost now. That was the plan, the Conservative plan, completely out the window. George Osborne used to want to have debt falling, gone. This is a revolution in Conservative economic strategy, all of this deficit reduction thing, they don't care about that anymore. And it's now spend, 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 capital spending, not current spending. It's still very tight on current spending, and that will feel quite problematic for them as the next government. But 3% of national income, they're going to allow themselves to borrow every year for capital spending. That's quite a lot. That's about a 50% increase on the amount of capital spending we have today. So big money, and it is a sea change in Tory thinking. It is extraordinary because if you think back to the 2015 election, which is the last time the Conservatives probably won a majority, that was fighting on austerity. And that was attacking Labour for promising to spend too much, be reckless with the economy, increasing debt, all that sort of thing. Now they're running on a platform that's exactly what they warned Ed Miliband's Labour Party would do. Yes, I mean, do you remember that? I can't remember which year the Labour Party conference speech of Ed Miliband where he forgot to mention the deficit and that caused outrage for days and days in the papers. Well, they don't care about the deficit anymore. We're going to have 3% of national income deficits, you know, 60 billion quid a year. It's not trivial. It's not a disaster. I mean, let's not, if you have that, we're not going to be in a situation where public sector debt is running away. We're not going to have a public sector net debt target anymore because with low interest rates, the idea now is to keep the servicing of that debt under control. But that means debt will be rising. So all of what we've heard for a decade of how important it is to get debt down, don't care. Now, on the Labour side of things, Jim Picard, John McDonnell also gave an economic speech and he announced that they were tearing up their fiscal rules and borrowing even more money than Sajid Javid wants to. Exactly. I mean, you might not have known that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party had a fiscal credibility rule, but they did have one under which a Labour government would keep the level of government debt falling as a share of national income during each parliament. And what he has done is he has revamped that rule. He has a new rule that he calls a cutting-edge fiscal rule. And this means that where the government is borrowing for capital spending on infrastructure, they say it just wouldn't count. It's quite a sort of magical piece of accounting. In some ways, you can see their logic, which is they're saying, if we spend a load of money and it produces an income-yielding asset, let's say a state-owned wind farm, or let's say we nationalise the water industry, you obviously need to borrow to do that, but you get some assets with a yield. You can sort of see the logic... I think where it gets more complicated is that some of this money will be spent on assets which don't have a rental yield. So if it's spent on hospitals and schools, 
that doesn't produce income to pay off the interest on the debt. So it's a little bit more complicated. But the long and short of it is that they were, at the last manifesto two years ago, promising $250 billion of extra borrowing for capital spending over 10 years. They ripped that up and said it's now going to be £400 billion. And of that, $250 billion would be for green transition stuff. And the other 150 would be for social transformation fund, which would be the care homes and the hospitals and the schools. The really interesting thing here, where the risks of this policy are, so compared with the Conservatives, Conservatives are going to be spending, let's say, £60 billion a year on capital. That's what their rules allow. Labour's rules allow a little bit over 100 So there's quite a big difference between the two, as Jim says. The risk, when you talk to people about what the risks are in all of this, they apply to both parties, but clearly more so to Labour than the Conservatives because there's more spending is what happens if there was a financing difficulty? If at some point in the future interest rates weren't as low and it was harder to finance all of this additional debt, where you have an income-yielding asset, as Jim said, you might be able to sell it and then you don't have to finance it anymore. Very hard. Do you imagine the Labour Party ever selling a school or a hospital? All these non-income-yielding assets, very, very difficult to sell and effectively impossible. So there is a big question about were we ever to be in a higher interest rate world or things just got a little bit more difficult. So if you are in those worlds, that's where these rules, we might, might come to regret them in future. And Jim, what is Labour's thinking on this? Because a lot of people look back to that 27 manifesto and its economic strategy. Labour was very keen to say it was very reasonable. It was very much in the tradition of social democratic parties across Europe. But over the past two and a half years, they have become more radical. They are promising to nationalise more things, spend more money. And clearly they feel they're confident of winning the argument. And the fact that Sanjay Javid is also promising to borrow and spend more does sort of suggest that the public broadly agrees with what they were saying in the last election, that austerity has failed and we do need to spend more on public services. Yeah, I mean, the the Labour manifesto of 2017 was quite a moment in terms of breaking political taboos and shifting the Overton window. It was said that if you had a manifesto with loads of nationalisations in it and lots more tax spending, then the electorate would blow you a raspberry and they didn't do anything of the kind. When you look back at the 2017 Labour Manifesto, it had about £48 billion worth of tax rises to pay for more day-to-day spending, as well as the extra £250 billion of capital borrowing for infrastructure investment over a decade. Now, bear in mind, we won't see the new Labour Manifesto for probably another week or so, be over a week. I think what we can very much read across from yesterday, though, is that by them changing their fiscal rule, they would have come up against that fiscal rule with their $250 billion of, of borrowing under the old rules. I think this will effectively free up something in that magnitude for day-to-day spending. So don't be surprised to see at least $25 billion in a year of extra spending and borrowing in the late manifesto when it comes out. And look, I think, yes, there is a sort of sense as they've gone along that although they thought the 2017 manifesto was popular, they do want to keep coming up with radical ideas, partly just to keep the base excited because they've got these half a million members, many of whom joined because Jeremy Corbyn became leader. And it feels a bit like they do need to keep them used with things like the 2030 zero carbon target. 
And Chris, what is the sort of international view of this as well? We have heard from some ratings agencies who have raised question marks this week about what this is going to mean for Britain's credibility, because that was always the argument of George Osborne. We have to keep spending low to make sure people don't get frightened and lose confidence in the UK. But whatever happens, whatever government is formed after this election, as you said earlier, is going to be piling up more debt and changing how the UK's economy looks at the moment. I mean, we're already seeing interest rates on government bonds rising a little bit. This is a global thing, not just a UK thing. So let's not get too excited about that. But if that went a lot further, then this would suddenly look a little bit more difficult. And this is where your debt service rules might start to bite. The Conservatives is much tighter than Labour's. Conservatives, that you can have debt service at 6% of tax revenues, Labour's 10%. Generally, ratings agencies get incredibly nervous if a country gets to 10% of debt service as a share of tax revenues. That's when they send your bonds generally to junk level. We're nowhere near junk level. So the fact that that's where Labour's allowing its target to be suggests that there might be quite a bit of international nervousness if we start to get up to that sort of level. We're about four and a half at the moment. So there's a little bit of leeway under the Conservatives for borrowing, quite a bit actually, and there's a lot under Labour. The thing that is in both parties' new fiscal frameworks is that they want to balance the current budget, balance day-to-day spending with taxation. And they seem to think that that gives them a bit of leeway. From everything I'm looking at the data, I think that's much tighter than they both realise. And I think that the sting that the Treasury has got in the tail, that Basically, this is the thing to keep the parties in check. Because remember, if you have capital spending, you can have an extremely shiny new rail system, but you do need current spending to operate it. You can have extremely beautiful schools, but you do need to staff them. This is going to be much more of a constraint, I would have thought. And it does mean that we're not actually moving into a world where parties will be able to say, let's have all these goodies and we're not going to have to charge you any tax. And finally, Jim, can I just pick up on Labour's campaign this week? How do you think it's generally gone for the party that when we were talking to George earlier, he felt it had been a good week for Labour because they had their Brexit moment. They tried to get that out the way quite early. John McDonnell's speech again went down very well in the room there. And it feels like for the party that didn't really want this election, it's going roughly as well as it could have hoped so. Yeah, I mean, what it seems to be coming down to probably is, does this turn out to be the Brexit election that Boris Johnson wants to be, or all issues apart from Brexit, which is what Jeremy Corbyn would like it to be? And I went to his event in Harlow on Tuesday, which was the kind of Brexit day. Out of 27 days in their grid, only two of them are dedicated to Brexit. And there are good reasons for that, which is that, of course, as we all know, the party is somewhat sat on the fence on this. But I think they feel that they do have a message, and the message isn't that complicated at this point. The message is, we'll give you a second referendum, whether you like it or not. Where it gets complicated is, what would Labour do in those circumstances? Did it renegotiate the deal and did have a referendum? But let's shelve that for now. The simple message is, we do a referendum. And then they want to get the subject matter onto other issues, such as NHS, extra funding, schools, austerity, food banks, and all the rest of it. And I think, compared to Tories, They've had a good start in so much as there haven't really been any gaffes. No one's messed up. Corbyn is looking reasonably energetic. He's out on the the stump three different rallies pretty much every day. The only major hiccup they've had, of course, is the departure of Tom Watson, deputy leader, who kind of out of the blue a couple of evenings ago just said, that's it, I'm off. There was no kind of attack on Jeremy Corbyn, even we know two men don't like each other at all, and they're from totally rival parts of the party. But the departure of Tom Watson... If you are someone who loves New Labour and 
holding out a hope of Labour becoming more centrist, you'd obviously be disappointed at the departure of Watson, who was rebel leader of the disheartened Labour MPs who are unhappy with Mr Corbyn's leadership. His departure does confirm that the Corbynistas are very much in the ascendant. In terms of how the party is perceived, though, it's not impossible that the party might look a little bit more unified if key figures in the civil war on the new Labour side disappear. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Miranda, Chris and Jim for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics, soon FT Election Countdown, was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Owen McSweeney. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.